0: Lately, the news about inflation has been positive in a good way. Compared to a year ago, when inflation was still 8%, the Bank of Canada recently reported that inflation levels had dropped to about 4%. That's moving closer to the 2% target, and it follows one of the fastest, most robust interest rate hiking cycles in modern financial history. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Louis-Philippe Rochon, a full professor of economics at Laurentian University in Sudbury, who takes a contrarian view of the situation that higher interest rates have not caused the decline in inflation. Throughout the past year, Roshan has been inviting economists from around the world to contribute to his Monetary Policy Institute blog, where they probe the numerous impacts of central bank policies. He's a Keynesian economist, and he thinks inflation was caused by supply-side issues that are unaffected by interest rates. If I could try to summarize briefly that the pandemic forced factories to shut down, which in turn led to shortages in some goods, and that resulted in the price spikes that started this inflationary episode. The war in Ukraine caused energy prices to spike, which exacerbated everything. But as these issues have resolved themselves, inflation has ebbed. So he offered up a pointed critique of central bank policies and posits that higher interest rates may actually have damaged the economy. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Hi, Louis-Philippe. Thank you so much for joining me on Down to Business today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. Uh, So you've written that raising interest rates to kill inflation is like using a jackhammer to kill a fly on your table. (laughs) I mean, the implication being that raising interest rates, I guess in this analogy, will kill the economy. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Sure. It's funny that you quote that sentence because just today there's a lot of discussion about the U.S. economy, how it's not going to be a soft landing. So, this is what the central bank wants to do it wants to bring down inflation without hurting the economy or minimizing the the costs in terms of unemployment and things of that nature. So, what I argue is doing that with interest rates is problematic because. I don't think raising interest rates necessarily brings down inflation, right? So that's one argument. So in that sense, monetary policy is misguided, especially with the type of inflation we have now. And second, and which follows from one, is because of that, monetary policy or central banks tend to raise interest rates and they wait to see what happens. Nothing happens to inflation. So they raise it again and they raise it (laughs) again. And they'll raise it in Canada, I think, eight or nine times right now in the United States, 10 times. And what happens eventually, you raise it, let's say that 11th time, and then the economy finally responds and collapses. And with that, you know, prices come down, et cetera. So that's what I mean by a sledgehammer. It's sort of a clumsy way of fighting inflation.
0: Interesting. I want to explore that more because other economists I've had on this show have said that raising interest rates to tame inflation is basically a trade-off. It's akin to accepting some short-term pain to avoid a much more costly, long-term, painful battle with inflation. So by raising interest rates, you make it more costly to borrow, you slow business expansions, all sorts of parts of the economy, which brings inflation down. And in that view, inflation is seen as a far worse problem than a brief recession because inflation is sticky. And once it gets momentum, it's very difficult to reverse. So which part of that argument do you find you disagree with?
1: Everything. <laughs> to those, yeah, no, but to those colleagues, I would ask them to take their noses out of first-year textbooks. So let me try to dissect some of the arguments. Let, let's start with the first one. Inflation is a major problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, inflation hurts households, but that's a microeconomic problem. It's a problem that affects me and you and our groceries, for example. But at the macro level, there is absolutely no proof, empirical or otherwise, that inflation poses a problem until it reaches 30% or around there. So the literature from very reliable sources have confirmed many times that inflation doesn't disrupt the economy. So that's one. And, you know, that's not just a theoretical argument, that's, that's an empirical fact. The second thing is, now, the way the economy works is that, again, this is an empirical fact. Consumption and investment, which are your two components of demand that are supposed to be interest-sensitive, empirically, they're very insensitive, meaning you raise interest rates and consumption and investment are not affected. Mm-hmm. Now, let, let me specify they are very insensitive to these incremental changes in interest rates. And we see it in the data. I mean, that's why the Fed has raised interest rates 10 times without the economy reacting that much. So consumption investments don't react that much to incremental changes. Although To cumulative changes in interest rates, when you raise interest rates from zero to five and a half percent, then comes a time when you raise to 575, then they react. Okay, that's because investment, you know, functions and theories are complicated. They don't just depend on interest rates, on many, many other variables. And so you can raise your interest rate and you won't have that effect. But you need that effect in the central bank philosophy to have their strategy of reducing inflation. So you don't have that, that relationship. And then second of all, you know, I don't think that inflation is particularly related to changes in interest rates because a monetary policy would work if we have the type of inflation that depends on changes in demand. So like I said, consumption and investment. So you raise your interest rates, you collapse your consumption and investment, and with that, you collapse your inflation. Right. But inflation, especially now, has nothing to do with changes in interest rates. Inflation now, and there's lots and lots and lots of empirical work on that, depends on things like the Russian war and gas.
0: Right, you've been writing on the Monetary Policy Institute blog all about this, and what you say is that inflation isn't coming because everyone in Canada is maxing out their credit cards or overspending. It's coming from supply bottlenecks that resulted from the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and its effect driving energy prices up. And I think the third thing in your view is from corporations passing these costs on to consumers. So those are all related to the supply of goods, not the demand. Correct. So is your, the argument basically that the central bank has no role in supply-side inflation?
1: Yeah. And I'm going to take that a step further. So raising interest rates won't solve bottlenecks. Raising interest rates won't solve the oil crisis and the wheat crisis in Russia, for example. And these problems, if you look at the price of oil and the the issues of bottlenecks and the cost of transportation related to transportation of goods, these have all come down to almost pre-pandemic level. And that's what you've seen in the inflation right now. Inflation has come down not because of monetary policy. But it has come down pretty much on its own as these issues have been resolving themselves. Now, let me point out, remember a year ago, central banks, both the Fed and Canada, said inflation was going to be a temporary problem. Guess what? They were right. (laughs) And they knew they were right back then, and they hesitated to raise interest rates. And I still think that they know this is to be true. But, you know, inflation is just coming down on its own. Meanwhile, I think interest rates have wreaked havoc on a number of issues. And I would also say that higher interest rates probably is preventing inflation from coming down even lower.
0: So in other words, it's having the counter effect.
1: Yes. So one of the issues that happens is when interest rates go up, cost of borrowing goes up, uh, mortgages go up. So, you know, owners just pass these costs to consumers through higher rents. And that's reflected in inflation. Companies raise prices because their cost of producing, of borrowing is going up. So they're passing this through to consumers. So I think that if we did not have this monetary austerity that we've had in the past year, we probably would be back to target on its own by, you know, mid to late 2023.
0: And just to be clear, target inflation is one to three percent in Canada and we are headed there, right? You're just saying you think we'd get there even quicker.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, on average, we say it's about 2%. So, you know, even the Bank of Canada said we'll be close to 3% by the end of 2023. And like you said, that's pretty much within the range. And I'd say we'd be even lower had it not been for these increases in interest rates.
0: That's interesting. And so let's talk about the effects of interest because as I take it from reading your blog, one of your contentions is that, if I'm understanding it correctly, that raising interest rates on some level keeps wages from growing. Can you talk for a second about that?
1: Yeah. So one of the interesting arguments that these economists that you've had on your show have probably advocated is, you know, we've got to prevent an inflationary spiral, which is wages go up, companies raise their prices. Workers demand higher wages to compensate, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got the spiral effect. But we know that empirically, wages are not out of control. They are not contributing to inflation. So we have a very docile labor market in the sense of wage pressures. And workers are still very weak in terms of uh, union uh, power or labor power. And so I don't think wages pose a serious threat to inflation at all. So all of these traditional arguments that we hear in the press about inflation, these are just sort of knee-jerk, basic argument reaction that people fall back on without really looking at the data.
0: And is that in part that we fall back on these arguments about inflation? Because the last time we had inflation in the 1970s, interest rates wound up somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 percent. Yeah. And there was this issue where unions, when they were negotiating their next contracts, were anticipating that inflation would drive the cost of everything up. And so they were negotiating higher wage increases as a result. And so you did get into this sort of spiral in the last episode.
1: Yeah, but, you know, it's a, it was a, the inflation of in the 70s was also sort of a supply issue. It was the old oil shock that propelled prices up. But you also had a, a, a Federal Reserve led by Chairman Volcker that brought interest rates to catastrophic levels. And so in that sense, you know, workers are just trying to catch up. You see a dramatic collapse of their real wages or their living standards, and they just want to catch up on, that, on those losses. And that's why we brought in wage and price controls. But it was a very different uh, circumstances. We, we have a little bit of that here in terms of monetary policy reaction to the current situation, but we're just not seeing workers reacting. And in one sense, you know, labor participation is much lower today than it was back then. And that's important. Fifty years of declining unionization rates weakens, you know, the, the labor force. So we just don't have that same reaction today. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break.
0: Let's just talk about the central bank psychology for a second. Mm -hmm. One of the things you've written on your blog is that they caved to pressure because they wanted to, I'm putting this in scare quotes, maintain credibility with the market. And there is, it seems to me, a weird sort of psychological element to the economy where if firms become worried about the future, then they might slow their spending. And there are these real world impacts on things like inflation.
1: Mm -hmm. so I do think that central banks reacted and caved to financial pressure about interest rates there were accusations that they were not being credible a lot of people believe that central banks need to be credible and when they were being accused of not doing anything about inflation that's when they kicked into action but you know what you mentioned about firms and investments you know I think investments are driven by expectations of growth of the economy And, and then the Second part of monetary policy or the policy puzzle is the role that fiscal policy plays. We have a tendency of thinking really pretty much in terms of what can monetary policy do, and we tend to not talk about fiscal policy. But as a Keynesian, I'm a true believer in the role that fiscal policy can play.
0: Can you explain the difference for the two for people who aren't? Yeah.
1: So, you know, monetary policy is uh, about central banks. And the rate of interest. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> and then the other lever of policy is fiscal policy, which is government spending, government taxes, and those types of instruments. And when the government spends, it adds to demand. Well, look at COVID. Imagine what would have happened if the government had not adopted the $2,000 serve payments a month. Mm. Can you imagine all these workers that were out of work? Essentially, the economy was shut down. All these people would not have been able to spend anything at all. The only reason the economy didn't collapse more was because the government came out and spent and gave people money. So, you know, in the literature, we talk about monetary policy dominance, the idea that only central banks or interest rates can impact the economy. But fiscal policy has a huge, way greater impact.
0: And that sort of stimulus or whatever you want to call it has also been criticized a lot. Like some people have looked at that and said that's the cause of inflation, that it is a bit of excess demand.
1: Well, you know, I encourage those people to go and look at the data and look at what the empirics say. There is an argument that people were saying that this post-pandemic savings are a result of fiscal policy. The government was giving people money and they couldn't really spend it all and they accumulated savings, but I don't think it had that much of a big impact on inflation? I don't think so. I don't think inflation is demand-driven, as we discussed earlier. I think inflation is about costs of production and issues on the supply side. And if I am correct, and I think I am, then there's absolutely no role for monetary policy in taming inflation. It's just, you know, these are first-year undergraduate arguments that, you know, should not be taught in universities anymore. People should teach uh, based on the empirical evidence and the data, and we would have a much different debate today than that we're having now.
0: But so how do you study these types of things? Because it's not like studying the laws of physics where you can sort of, you know, test the law of gravity. I mean, in a global economy, we can't necessarily just look at an economy that didn't raise its interest rates and say like, look, this country is fighting inflation because chances are it has a number of connections to economies where the interest rates were raised. So how how do these sort of research and debates on these issues play out?
1: Well, you know, you just got to do a deep dive into the data. And there are people that are way more qualified than me to do that. But, you know, you look at the data and you can draw a picture of how the economy moves or doesn't move or collapses or grows when government spends or when, you know. Look, I'll just give you an example of the problem I have a lot with Monetary policy. Look, during COVID, during the financial crisis, interest rates went down to zero. Well, your first year textbook, and a lot of economists will tell you that's good because that's going to lead to companies investing and growth and everything like that. But that doesn't happen. Business investment doesn't grow just because interest rates are, are zero. So, and for the same reason, they don't necessarily collapse because you start raising interest rates. So it's a lot more complicated and thorny than what the textbooks or the theory tells you. You just have to go into the data. And there's lots of good data and there's good research being done out there. But the arguments are not being heard as much because, you know, economists are stubborn and they believe in their theories that they've learned and and they keep those. And they sort of refuse to listen to what the data is saying.
0: I mean, and so a lot of your research probes who wins and loses as a result of central bank policy, Mm -hmm. I think.
1: I mean, before
0: this, we had 15 years, like you were saying, of zero to no inflation. Yeah. Who are sort of the winners and losers of these periods?
1: Well, for me, monetary policy is foremost about income distribution and wealth distribution amongst groups of people. Uh, Last month, this was the topic. And the Bank of Canada is having a conference this year on this topic. So this is pretty much a very well established idea. So when interest rates increase, you got to figure out who's winning here. And in this case, these are asset holders or bond holders who are making a little bit more money from the return from holding bonds. And I'm hosting a conference precisely on this November. So there are winners and there are losers. And if you raise interest rates too much, it is going to lead to unemployment. And who suffers? Well, the industries that are often affected first are often where a lot of women are involved. Coming out with an edited book this year on the relationship between monetary policy and gender, how you know monetary policy has a gender bias.
0: How does that work?
1: Yeah, if you raise interest rates, you might start affecting industries that are more higher concentration of women in, in that industry. So those sort of fragile industries that are first affected by monetary policy tend to have more women in there and more immigrants, for example. So there's these biases with with respect to monetary policy. What I like to say is monetary policy is like an onion. You got to peel back the layers and then you get into issues about social classes, about gender, about the environment, which is becoming sort of huge right now as well. So you have all of these monetary policy and social justice, monetary policy and democracy. So these are issues that you start thinking about once you start peeling back the layers. And I am an economist, but economists tend to just to look at the superficial interest rates and output. But it's a lot more complicated and thorny than that.
0: Well, there seems to be so much to talk about here, but maybe the last question is sort of about the present and what lies ahead. Because we're in the spring of 2023 and we've raised interest rates in Canada to a 15-year high. And there may be some wiggle room, but they're basically expected to stay at this rate for the rest of the year. What sort of legacy consequences or ramifications or issues are you following closely?
1: Yeah, so I think you're right. And I think that um, in the medium uh, term, you're going to have interest rates remaining pretty much at these levels. But I think over the long term, you're going to see interest rates coming back down to 1% and 2%, and probably staying around that level in the long term. So I think that if there's any comfort for Canadians is that you know, if you hang on a little bit more, you're going to have lower interest rates in the longer term. Let me just touch on something here. If I am right about inflation being supply-driven, And if I am right that monetary policy has no effect on that kind of inflation, then the question we end up with is, was this past year for nothing? Should we have not raised interest rates? But they did. And what happened? Now we have some banks are predicting 30% increase in mortgage defaults, people potentially losing their jobs, and you have a lot of these social costs. That was engineered by, I think, a misguided policy. I think that's unfortunate, but I think that's sort of the consequence of monetary austerity.
0: Well, Louis-Philippe, I want to thank you so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me about this important issue. Thank you.
1: It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it.
0: That was Louis-Philippe Rochon, a full professor of economics at Laurentian University. Thanks for listening to Down to Business. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music, designed the Down to Business logo, and executive produced this episode. Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes in the future. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.